0: What a joy to worship the Lord in song, in prayer, and now in the word. Let me pray and ask his help. Father, thank you for Revelation 5. Thank you for the joy that wells up in our hearts as we hear it read. Thank you for the privilege we have to glory in your Son over this passage. Speak to us. Use the frail, broken means of my effort and the powerful, indwelling Holy Spirit hovering over us, speaking to us in groans too deep for words the glories, the excellencies, the manifold glories of Jesus Christ on display in this passage. Strengthen us, clarify, purify, ready us for heaven. None of us has the rest of this worship service guaranteed, much less the rest of this day or year. Ready us to enter this worship service occurring in heaven. By this service, even now, at this moment, Speak, Lord, for your servants we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. This scene that Paul just read out of Revelation chapter 5 occurred to John as he was in the spirit in the first century. John, the author, is the 12th apostle. The previous 11 are dead, martyred by this time, probably about 95 AD. John had given specific words to the seven churches to encourage them in their battle, in their struggle with persecution and opposition with death, with sin internally, with the devil himself. And he now gives a vision of the throne room of heaven in Revelation 4 and 5 in such a way that he says, here is the answer for all the struggles churches you now face and shall face. All that you have faced and shall face is answered by this vision of worship in Revelation 4 and 5. It's the core of the book of Revelation. Everything that we read about in these two chapters is unfolded in the rest of the chapters of Revelation, chapter 6 through 22. This vision is John's divine and Spirit-inspired answer to comfort and strengthen the churches that are under persecution. If you're going through difficulty right now, if you anticipate that for your faith you may go through difficulty one day, if you're going out to bear witness and you know you'll be opposed, see with new eyes this vision of Christ worshipped in Revelation 4 and 5 and take from it the very encouragement that he intends for you to receive. Do you remember the last verse of chapter 4? The living creatures, the four living creatures, remember the man, the eagle, the ox, and the lion, they were gathered around the throne, and the 24 elders were casting down their throne, their crowns at the throne, and they sang to the Lord God, who they couldn't even see except for the rainbow light around his throne, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and we created. Creation is meant to cause everybody to worship God. When you see beautiful blue sky and a million colors of flowers. When you see animals or a brand new baby born. Or you're stunned at your own hand and what it can do. When you're amazed at the images coming back from the James Watt telescope. Taking pictures of the universe a million miles away from earth you and i are to say worthy are you lord and god to receive glory all the glory that you put into the entire universe receive it back to yourself all the honor everyone who wants to honor every human horizontal recipient let it all redound back to you god all the power that you've loaned to us we give it all back to you For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Yet the worship that happens on the earth most often is not the worship of Almighty God who created all that is, but sadly and sinfully the worship of what he created. The worship of the creation rather than the creator. All error, all sin all pagan systems of worship and religions has at the very core, I'm going to worship me. Can't I worship me just a little bit? Can't I worship my family or ethnicity? Can't I worship my ideas, my club, my group, my achievements? Can't I buy a city and call it by my name? Can't I have some worship for me? That's the essence of all sin. The response of Almighty God is Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned when my glory? I will not give to another. The great drama of the entire universe is how is God going to receive all the glory that he deserves and gather for himself a redeemed people who are forgiven of their self-worship and their creation worship, turned into worshipers of Christ by the miracle of the new birth. Here we have in Revelation 5 a vision of the lion and the lamb. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, standing forth to receive all the worship that belongs to God alone. Is he sinning? Is he rebelling? Is there confusion? Did the God who has no body on the throne, only light, take the form of the lamb and the lion? No. God the Father without a body, receives all worship always, the beginning and the end, the ancient of days, ever existing. And the second person of the Trinity, His Son, Jesus Christ, the Lion and the Lamb, also receives worship with Him, yet they are one God, and the Spirit who is present, as we'll see in a moment, the third person of the Trinity, co-eternal with God the Father and the Son, also receives worship with the Father and the Son. Three persons eternally coexistent together in one God. In this vision that John has in the Spirit, where Christ has also ushered and welcomed him into the whole heavenly throne room, verse 1 says, John proclaims, Then I saw in the right hand of him... Who is seated on the throne? How does an unembodied eternal father sit anywhere? Why does he need something to sit on? How does he have a hand? Even a right hand? These are mysteries. John is given a vision to help us see the very location and presence of Almighty God as he dwells in heaven. He's not seated because he's tired. He's not embodied as if somehow the eternal spirit of the living God can be bodied. It can't be. He has a right hand only so that he might hold a scroll. And the vision which is only groping and grappling at these realities might help us to see a transition, a a giving of authority, power, and dominion to the Son. God has no hands, nor is he embodied It is false to declare so, yet here we have in this passage the image of Almighty God Eternal seated on the throne and in His right hand a scroll. He holds a scroll, very specifically one written on the inside of the scroll and yet written on the outside as well, full of all of the decrees of God, the laying out of everything God says will happen in history. Everything in history is there. Everything in the scroll will occur. Nothing can fail. And it's sealed with seven seals, perfectly sealed. Not because people don't know what's inside of it. We already know what's inside of it. Just as in the ancient times, emperors would have their wills or their contracts or their their decrees sealed with seven seals. And then they would produce copies. And the copies were for everybody to know what was inside the scroll all rolled up but the seven seals meant it had not yet been enacted. The seven seals needed to be opened, and when the seven seals were opened, then the declarations and the decrees contained therein were enforced. This scroll, in the Father's hand, as it were, is the scroll, I'm convinced, that he told Daniel to write 700 years ago in Daniel 12, verse 9, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the end of the Until the time of the end, Daniel 12, 9. Hidden for seven centuries, no mistake as to the time, John now sees how heaven is ready to open the seven seals of the scroll of God's decrees for all history and enact them. They are to come to pass. Nothing could be more important than God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, Let your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. God's will must be done. Nothing could be worse than God's will being stopped. If someone was able to stop God's will, God would no longer be God, and whatever stopped him would be the stronger. The scroll, in fact, John sees as a contractual deed, We know what's in it because we've heard from the prophets. We know what the apostles have told and written. We have the scriptures. We know what is the will of God. We know what kind of a God he is. We know what he does when he encounters sins. He sends a 40-day rainfall and flood. We know his kindness and his mercy that in all his wrath he remembers mercy. We know by copies, as it were, what's already on the holy scroll. Now, God, do it tear open the seals and enact it, make it happen, let your will be done. And yet verse 2 says, it takes a mighty angel to stand forth in the heavenly worship. The four living creatures, the 24 elders are all around and John's watching and listening and the mighty angel says, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? In other words, we know what's in this scroll There's going to be wrath and punishment against sin. There's going to be mercy and grace offered to those who receive it. Who is worthy to enact such holy, just realities for eternity? Who has the sinless righteousness to declare the righteousness of God? Who can stand in the presence of God and speak for Him? Who has the holy character, the moral courage, the true purity to come up and take every one of the seven seals and break it open. The wax seals that that seal that scroll tight and unfold the will and plan of God for time and eternity. Who has clean enough hands and pure enough heart to ascend the hill of the Lord and take that scroll? Not Michael or Gabriel. Not any of the demons under the earth. They were not worthy. No human being is worthy. Moses was there. Abraham, Sarah, Ruth, Elijah, and Hannah, David, they're all there. They're not worthy. The apostles, 11 apostles, had all been martyred by this time. They were there. Paul and Peter, they're not worthy. Who is worthy to bring the wrath of God down upon the earth, but not upon themselves? Who can declare the mercy and justice and kindness? of God to sinners without himself also being a sinner for permitting God's mercy to fall on the guilty. Who in all the earth, who in all of heaven is without sin and worthy to open the scrolls? No one came forward. Verse 3 and 4, and no one on heaven, in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Nobody came forward. The anticipation in heaven grinds to a halt. The mighty angel declared the need. Everybody is waiting, breathlessly eager for someone to come forward. They all know who's present. They all know the virtue and honor and worth of all those who are present, and not one of them comes forward. So John begins to weep. Look at verse 3 no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it and I began to weep loudly. It literally says, I began to weep and weep because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John is weeping because he he can't bear to think the thought, could all the prophecies of the Old Testament fail? Could all the prayers of the saints be a sham, a wasted joke like the persecutors and accusers say they are? Could all the promises of God contained in the Bible collapse and fall to naught? If God's plan in reality is not unsealed and it's not enacted, does everything he promised fizzle out and fail? All our suffering would be in vain. All our faith would be futile. There would be no justice restored, no resurrection from the dead, no joy, nor hope then. If not then, then not now, not ever. Can you imagine a deeper existential grief than coming to the idea that your death and the death of everyone you know and this world and all the creation's beauty that you've already seen was all a colossal exercise in failure and despair? Can you imagine a weeping deeper and darker than gazing into a black hole of despair because nothing matters at all. The vast majority of the people in this world, the vast majority of the people in this country, the vast majority of people who ever lived on planet earth are ultimately staring into this black abyss right now. Some because they intentionally take it to themselves and label themselves atheists. In 1903, a famous atheist named Bertrand Russell, whose booklet, A Free Man's Worship, is influential and passed around all over the internet, influencing many, many thinkers today, more now than it was back in the early 1900s. In it, he claimed, there are two twin truths on which to build your life, fate and despair. You can just imagine the people who flocked to him. Build your life on two truths, fate and despair. They are supportive of a thinking person's life, he said. Then his closing sentence, only within the scaffolding of these two truths. I I just think that's a great metaphor. Yep, scaffolding, like wobbly. Only within the scaffolding of these two truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair. Yep, that's his sentence. Can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. He didn't want to be surprised by a hopeless eternity. So he planned ahead for it. And now he has it. John's sobs arise from the heart that can't bear the possibility that all of God's plans and all of life and reality will come to a colossal, despairing end of futility. You can imagine then John's relief when one of the elders speaks up and says to John, weep no more. Look at verse five. I imagine one of the elders rising up and putting his hand on John's shoulder and saying, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And John thinks, oh yeah, (laughs) the lion of Judah. I do love cats. I love the biggest, strongest cat named 150 times in the Old Testament. The Lion of Judah, the Root of David. He's David's ancestor, he's David's descendant, and he has the power to sit on the throne. No one can topple him. He has conquered. All the conquering that Christ commanded of the seven churches and of us happens as we unite ourselves and entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ. Whatever you're facing, whatever health issue, financial issue, relationship issue, Whatever fear, whatever demonic attack, whatever job or political or uh, emotional, mental concern of fear or struggle you might need to conquer, you will conquer it in one way and in one way alone, and that's through Jesus Christ. Whether there's medication or counseling or therapy or, or a host of other improvements to be accessed and received as blessings from God, the ultimate conquering of every need the human condition can bear is through the conquering that's happened through the lion of judah paul says in romans fifteen twelve, the root of jesse will come even he who rises to rule the gentiles and in him the gentiles hope the hope of native americans who live all through this country the hope of indians and chinese africans asians Caucasians, peoples from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, is the hope found in Jesus Christ. There is no hope for them in any other fashion. They face the black abyss of despair apart from him. So powerful, so global is God's mercy. It extends beyond the ethnic Jews to true Jews who receive him by faith from among the Gentiles. He's the lion of Judah, and Judah is is defined by all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Galatians chapter 3. The close of Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus biographically declares himself in a powerful verse, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He says, I am this lion of Judah. I am the root of David, his ancestor. I am the descendant from David, the one seated on the throne and conquering in his name and in the name of God. So John thinks, yes, lion, fangs, Big claws, huge paws, strong muscles. He's fast, he's fierce, he's tenacious and majestic. He's regal and noble and kingly and magnificent. Anybody who tackles with him is going to lose. He can shred his enemies. Come, lion, you take the scroll, you open it, and you conquer throughout all the plans of God and defeat all the enemies of God by shredding them. John hasn't lifted his head yet. So in verse 6, he turns, and with him our attention turns. And John writes, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw, now he's looking through his puffy, tear-filled eyes, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John might have thought, where's the lion? Between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, there he is, the lion of Judah. But that's not a lion, that's a lamb. Bait and switch, no. No tricks. Different being, does he have... A lion's side and a lamb's side? Does he have the eyes of a lamb but the face of a lion? Is he a lion but cuddly and tame? Is he a lamb but really fierce? No. No bait and switch. No tricks. No amalgamation into something unrecognizable. In the vision, Jesus Christ is standing fully as a lion, ruling and reigning in sovereign majesty and glory and power, and he is standing as a lamb, meek, humble, scarred. Neither identity compromises the other. He is the conquering lion and the dying and risen lamb. He conquered his enemies by dying for them that believe. Look at how it says he stands, I believe, in intercession. His conquering, this lion who is the lamb who conquers, enables him to stand as fully lion and fully lamb at the center near the throne where four living creatures are around him and all the elders are around him. In other words, he is in the place of receiving praise and worship and he's not rejecting it, but he's actually receiving it. He is not different than God. He is God. He is the second person of the Trinity, one God, the three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And together, they're all receiving worship here in Revelation chapter 5. It also means Christ is interceding, as it were, for all those who have gathered into heaven by faith and all the sinners who believe in Him on earth by faith. The lamb receives all the worship just as the father receives all the worship. And all that worship is occurring in heaven, but it's also occurring around the world. It's occurring in our hearts. It's occurring in your heart right now as you're delighting in him more than you're bothering to listen to me. You're thinking about the glory of the Lamb and you want to come into His presence and you want with John to bow down and you have so much sin and, within and around and without that you too want to weep with Him before His glory. You see, as John does, and as this passage shows us, a beautiful combining of the mighty qualities of a lion, an image from nature, The creation points us, not so that we worship lions, but so that when we see a lion, we worship Christ. And and you see a lamb, not so that we would value and cherish lambs, but so that when we see every lamb, we would worship Christ. John says, as though it had been slain. It spent some time in the grave. It was dead. It's not dead anymore. It has scars. it's, Its blood was spilt. This is a lamb that by looking at it, you can see it had already died, but it's, it's alive, it's risen, and it's receiving worship. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This word in Revelation chapter 5 Verse 6, elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. That's the same word for slaughter, slaughterhouse, slaughter the animal. That's the word used here referring to Christ. It's the same word translated from Hebrew in Isaiah 53, 7, a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Peter picks this up in his apostle apostolic letter, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. 1 Peter 1. The Lamb of God says to all of heaven, as it were, by standing right in the center where the throne is, with angels in the person of these beings, these four created beings, bowing down with elders and their crowns bowing down. And as we'll see next time, all of heaven and all of creation worshiping him, he's saying, I conquered not by shredding, but by dying for my enemies and rising from the dead. I conquered by suffering for those who would trust in me. The shredding of those who reject me is yet to come, but I received the shredding in their place since I suffered in payment of their penalty I give to them my life for all who will receive it. I am worthy, therefore, to open the scroll that guarantees their salvation. And I am worthy to open the scroll that guarantees the judgment and destruction of all who refuse me. I am worthy, says the Lamb. I am worthy, says the Lamb. Look at my scars. These scars the Father and the Spirit and I plan together before the foundation of the world. And I'm not ashamed of them, but I boast in them, says the Lamb. They reveal I am worthy to open the scroll and enact the Father's plan for the ages. Even a lamb can roar. This lamb has seven horns. All power and might belongs to the lamb. The lamb has all the power there is to enact what's written in the scroll, the decrees and promises and judgments of God. It has seven eyes, which are the sevenfold Holy Spirit. He sees everything. No one can deceive or pull anything behind the lamb's Back, he sees all things perfectly with seven eyes. For his seven eyes are the sevenfold Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity, also receiving worship and yet carrying out and applying the decrees of God throughout the whole earth and to all persons everywhere. The Lion of Judah, who is the Lamb of God, Steps up to the throne where the now image of an embodied, disembodied father holds in his right hand the scroll. The lion who is the lamb is worthy to take the scroll from the father's right hand. It's a passing of power. Here are the keys, son. Can you imagine the look between the Father and the Son? If he had a hand, he must have had eyes. Can you imagine how the lamb, the lion, took the scroll from the Father? This is what we aimed at for eternity past, that you would receive power and authority and glory and all ability to carry out our will together over all the earth and over all creation. Pastors godlier than I and theologians and interpreters have tried to show how Christ, the lion and the lamb, combine together these glories, these qualities, these excellencies that are true of Christ, but are combined into one person, the lion, the lamb. Here's my attempt. When Christ died on the cross, he combined together this slaughtering lamb and yet this reigning lion. On the cross, Christ was profoundly humiliated, yet at that same time, he was lifted up in glory. On the cross, he gave himself up as utterly powerless, yet in dying, tore the curtain of the body and all of reality in two. On the cross, he resigned himself to the Father's will, yet held absolute sovereignty over the world while he died. On the cross, we see perfect obedience to the Father, yet always remained equal with God. On the cross, he loved his father perfectly, yet he was also loving his enemies perfectly too. On the cross, he achieved perfect justice, yet suffered so great an injustice as none greater could be conceived. On the cross, Christ's holiness blazed forth like the sun, yet he has never more so regarded as unclean, guilty, and unholy. On the cross, Christ displayed his infinite worth, yet he was declared the lowest of criminals, his life barely worth freeing the convicted Barabbas. On the cross, he freely received blows of condemnation, kisses of betrayal, curses of denial from those whom he has fiercely loved to the uttermost. On the cross, Christ, the Lamb of God, received the fangs of death from the lion imposter, Satan. Yet in that bite... Christ's righteousness fatally poisons the donkey, the devil. Christ's defeat was actually his victory. Here's the lion and the lamb the humiliated, humble, and meek one, silent while being killed, crying out in no way. And yet he's the sovereign king, the magisterial, holy one, the lion of Judah. No wonder all heaven bows before him. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb in verse 8. Each holding a harp. You gotta have a guitar for worship. The Greek is katara. It's where we get the name guitar. I'm not interested in carrying around some massive thing that needs to be wheeled in. I'll let the real musicians do that. I'm just going to grab my guitar and fall down and be ready to play while I'm lying down. And and they were also holding golden bowls full of incense. Not just because they like the smell of it. The golden bowls full of incense are the prayers of all the saints that would be completely a failure and foolish if Christ had not stepped forward and taken the scroll and opened its seals. Now every drop of the prayers of the saints is held in golden bowls, and it shall be poured out by those angels at the appointed time, and not one prayer will be wasted. Prostrate, fallen, humbled, crushed, trembling with joy, solemn like a storm, gleeful like a birth, all of heaven... And every person who's awake spiritually on earth worships around the throne. Bow in wonder at the manifold excellencies of Christ, these polyvalent majesties of our Savior. Tune your guitar, open the floodgates of your prayers and pour them into golden bowls like rivers. Invest yourself now in this brief life you've been given so that it counts richly for this moment in heaven when in worship everyone gathers around the throne to sing, and to pray. Make sure your spouse is there. Make sure your kids are there. Make sure your parents are there. Make sure everyone you know is there. Make sure that every person that looks like they're looking into the black abyss of despair and futility, hears the good news that there is room for more worshipers in God's heaven. More worshipers around the throne in this life. Worshippers who come out of darkness and sin and guilt and slothful, lazy, covetous lust and anger and hatred and murder and are forgiven, cleansed, purified. All of heaven, all of history, all of humanity prepare to worship the lion and the lamb and all hell is watching. That's my summary of reality. All of heaven, all of history, all of humanity prepare to worship the lion and the lamb, and all hell is watching. May you and I and believers around the world repent of sin and be among that collection of the elect of humanity who worship him and not dwell forever in hell. This is the best, freest, clearest, truest way to describe reality. Stand back and savor the vision of the Lion and the Lamb. It is what God intends for you forever. I want to invite every person who, by their own profession and testimony, worships the Lamb, worships God, the Lion of Judah, in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Come to this table that we are preparing for you in the bread and the cup. Come to remember what Christ has done when he, as a lamb of God, was taking away the sins of the world, including your sins, as you've repented and laid them at his feet. Also, feast upon him now. As it were, the lion didn't come just to devour, the lion came to be devoured. The lion didn't just come to eat. But to be eaten. This table has on it these elements which symbolize the very body and blood of the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God. All who come to this table are not only remembering the wonder of the cross and how their lives have been made new by the new birth in trusting in Christ. But they're worshiping him now. Worshiping him now with the worship that occurs in heaven and the worship that occurs around the world. Christ came to save us and conquer over sin and our enemies by dying. By his death, he brought about an abundant life for us now who believe and an eternal life then. Let all believers in this room, even those watching by live stream where you are in your home, take the bread and the cup, and as we share it together, make it your worship to the Lord right now. You've worshiped in singing. You've worshiped in prayer. We've worshiped over this passage of Scripture. Now let's worship with thankful, grateful, satisfied hearts, taking and eating of the Lamb of God, who is the Lion of Judah. Let's pray.